I know most of you, but uh, in case I don't know you, I'm Brian Fry. I'm campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship uh, at Boise State. So uh, we are, if you've got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 2. We are taking a break this week from the series that Brad's been doing in Revelation, looking at the letters to the seven churches. Uh, we're not really straying all that far, though, from the series, because uh, I, th- I think, at least for me and probably for most of us, one of the toughest things about those letters in Revelation, and honestly, well, all of the letters that we find in the New t- most of the letters that we find in the New Testament, is the simple fact that they're written to churches. Um, and, and the reason that's hard for us is because, well, we're, we're Americans, and most of us think of ourselves... Uh, Mo- really just as individuals, we, we don't really have a very church-centered view of the Christian life. Maybe we kind of think the church is probably sort of important for some reason. So we show up here. You guys are here, so you at least think church is worth something. Um, but uh, we certainly don't tend to see it as central in the way we think about our faith, and the way we think about what growth and maturity uh, looks like for us as Christians. So uh, we're just going to look at these uh, few verses here from Acts chapter 2. This is just after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, just after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people. And we get this little glimpse into the life of the earliest church. And so hopefully, my, my hope for us is that as we look at this, these verses will grow a little bit in our understanding of what the church is uh, and grow a little bit in our understanding of, of what it means for you and I to be the church together. So uh, let's pay attention to God's word. Acts chapter 2, we'll start in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you do reveal yourself to us in your word. We confess that we need your help to understand it rightly. We confess that I need your help to expound it clearly and rightly. Would you help us with that this morning? And would you, all, would you grow us all up uh, in our knowledge and in our love for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so a lot of you probably may may have heard this story. I don't know. I read about it in National Geographic, but I think it was probably reported in other places too. It's kind of a big deal. Um, but uh, it's an art story. I'm not an art expert. I try to make sure that I say something about which I know very little in any time I preach. Um, so this is the part. <laughs> no. Uh, there's a story in National Geographic. In 1998, there was a, a painting up for sale at an auction in New York. It was a Renaissance-style painting of uh, some unknown princess. Um, No signature. It's just sort of a nice old painting. It didn't really get a whole lot of attention. It sold 
to a New York art gallery for $20,000, which in my world is a whole lot of money, but I guess in the world of antique art, it's really not that much. Um, so uh, it was sitting in this uh, gallery for about 10 years. 10 years later, 2008, there's a Canadian art collector. His name's Peter Silverman. He sees it, and he promptly buys it for about the same price, about 20000 and he begins obsessively studying it and researching it. He hires a team of specialists to study it. Why? Uh, because the moment he saw that painting, he said, that looks like a da Vinci. So he bought it. That I would too. As in Leonardo da Vinci. Um, just so we're clear on which da Vinci we're talking about. Um, so <laughs> today, as far as I understand it, most of the uh, art world agrees that this is almost certainly a genuine da Vinci, uh, which means it's virtually priceless. I, I've read the estimate was about $100 million, i.e. priceless. That's, that's like an unfathomable amount of money for me. Um, so, but how do they know? How, do the, how did Silverman and all these experts know that this was a da Vinci? Uh, what, what caused them to conclude that this was genuine. Well, it bore all of the characteristic marks of da Vinci's hand. It was had his style. Uh, it fit the date. It had all of the little details that evidently are characteristic of his portraits that he did. Um, you can even tell that the... not I can't. One can tell that the brush strokes were done by someone who's left-handed, um, which he was. Uh, so a, a trained eye could tell that this painting is the product of da Vinci's hand because... It bore all the distinctive characteristics of da Vinci's. You see his fingerprints all over it. Not literally his fingerprints. That would have been helpful, though. Um, uh, <laughs> but you have to know what to look for, right? You've got to know what to look for. So what does a painting look like if it, bears, if it bears the fingerprints of da Vinci? So we're talking about the church this morning. I start with that illustration for this reason. I, I think we can similar, similarly ask the question, uh, what does the church of Jesus Christ look like if it bears the fingerprints of the God who created it? Um, what are the trademark characteristics we would look for in the church if we're trying to figure out if it's a genuine creation of the God of truth and grace or just something that we kind of do together? What would we look for? Uh, we should say from the outset, a whole lot of people, probably some of us have a tendency to be repelled by the church. We have a tendency to distance ourselves from it and want to avoid it altogether. Um, and any idea of the Christian life having the church anywhere near the center is a little bit repulsive to us. But at the same time, <clears throat> others of us, or maybe the same ones of us at various times, have found the church to be our lifeline. It's been so radically and refreshingly different from every other community of individuals we've been a part of. Uh, where's, that, where's that tension come from? Why are we simultaneously uh, drawn towards the church and, and repelled by her? I think the answer that we'll find, uh, even as we just look at these verses, is that it's precisely because it bears the fingerprints of God. And that, will, that repels us and also draws us in at the same time. Uh, the Bible says a whole lot about the church. A lot of people have said a whole lot about the church. We're not going to say all of it. Uh, I just want to look at these verses this morning. Um, uh, this might be especially helpful. Uh, we're having a congregational meeting today, right? Uh, hope maybe it'll be helpful for us to just look at this little snapshot of the earliest church 
uh, just after Jesus' death and resurrection, and he pours out his Holy Spirit. Basically, when the church of Jesus Christ really becomes the church of Christ, we get this little snapshot of the life of the church. And I just want to ask these three questions. What did the church do? How did the church do it? And what was the result? Uh, what, are, what were the activities of the life of the church? Uh, what, wh- how did they do those activities? What characterized those activities? And then what effect did those activities have? So first, what did the church do? Uh, I think it's hard to miss. It's probably what's jumps at, it's what jumps out to me when I, when I read this passage is that there is uh, radical growth going on in the church. Uh, 3,000 people were added to the church in one day at Pentecost. Um, And then verse 47 tells us that their numbers continued to grow on a daily basis. The Lord added to their number day by day. Um, So what are they doing, right? It seems like we ought to just take notes on their little model for ministry and then replicate it and then sit back and watch people flood in. So what did they do? Verse 41, they were baptized. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread which was an expression that that was used to refer to the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. Kind of underwhelming. I'm not about to set up a ministry model based on that, are you? Right? I mean, that looks awfully ordinary. That just sounds like what the church does, isn't it? Uh, So basically, they got together, they heard the scriptures taught as the apostles expounded the Old Testament and proclaimed the fulfillment of all of God's promises Uh, the fulfillment of God's great plan of redemption in Jesus Christ and his his life and his death and his resurrection. And it says they participated in the sacraments. They were baptized and they observed the Lord's Supper. Um, Okay, so maybe we don't have a clear-cut path to revival just yet. But um, it sounds pretty unspectacular. Sounds like the ordinary life of the church. Uh, Back in the 1500s, when the Protestant Reformation was gaining steam, uh, and, and really all over Europe, the, the leaders of the Reformation were forced to wrestle with this question. What makes the true church of God the true church of God? What distinguishes a true church from a false church? Uh, is, it the, is, it, is it the church's connection to the Pope? Uh, I hope not for the sake of the Reformers, right? That's what they were thinking. What, uh, why can we say that we're a true church? Uh, is, it, is it because of some particular activities that the church does. It's a question that really most of the major reformers dealt with at one point or another. Um, And I think it's a question we all all probably would benefit from reflecting on a little bit. What is it that uniquely characterizes the church of God? Uh, What is it that sets it apart from false churches? And what is it that sets it apart from every other human organization that you and I are involved with? The conclusion that's been arrived at time and time again uh, is this, is that the, the true church of God is identified by three things. By the true preaching of the word, by the right administration of the sacraments, and by faithful exercise of church discipline. Uh, the word, sacraments, and discipline, those three things, they're, they're known as the marks of the church um, in theological circles. The marks of the church. We're not going to get into a theological discu- discussion about it, but I want, uh, it's worth highlighting that These are the things that distinguish the church of God from every other human organization. These are the things that no other organization is uniquely uh, equipped with. And it's not a coincidence, I think, that these are precisely what we see happening here in the very earliest church. I'll admit the third one of those, church discipline, isn't exactly front and center in this passage. But it is front and center in a whole lot of other places throughout the Bible. And I would actually say it's in the background here. 
Um, as we see the, the church actively involved in each other's lives, we also uh, it seems to be clear that there's a there, there's a clear designation of who is a part of their number, as it says in verse 47, and, and who is not. Uh, I'll come back to that in a minute, though. Um, <clears throat> but the other two marks are, are, are front and center here. The word of God is being preached as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the sacraments are front and center as they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper. And as they baptized those who came into the church. So the, the question I want us to ask, though, is, is this. Why these things? Why these? Um, why would these be the things that characterize something that's supposed to have the fingerprints of God all over it? Because they seem so ordinary. Uh, they seem so mundane and unspectacular to us. Uh, why not something like power or wealth or something else that God has that he could, could give us? Something else that would maybe give the, cause the world to pay a little more attention uh, couldn't God have made his church to bear his fingerprints in a more spectacular way in our minds? <clears throat> well, just, just looking at this passage, it's, it, it seems like God was actually doing some pretty spectacular things through these apparently ordinary means, right? So how does God use such ordinary things to bring such amazing fruit in the life of his church? How does he do that? One of the unique things I get to do in my job just by virtue of the uh, demographics that I'm called to minister to is I get to do a lot of premarital counseling, which I love. Uh, I, I genuinely love it. Um, a lot of you are married. Um, hopefully you did some kind of premarital counseling. A lot of you aren't married, and the whole thing seems a, a little bit mysterious to you. Um, it's not. But uh, one of the primary goals in my mind of premarital counseling is this. It's to get the couple to think about the expectations that they're coming into marriage with. Let's get these expectations out on the table. Because everybody, whether they realize it or not, enters marriage with certain expectations of what marriage is and what it's going to look like. And a lot of those expectations just don't line up with reality, with, with what marriage is actually like. Um, because as wonderful and as exciting as, as marriage is, and it is, um, it's also a lot more ordinary than newly engaged couples are typically thinking of it as being. Uh, there are dirty dishes that need to get cleaned. There's complicated finances. There's hurt feelings. Um, there's hard conversations. And there's all of these ordinary, mundane things of life that very, very quickly become a part of your marriage, and they ought to. Um, but I think uh, those of you who are, who are married would agree that uh, a healthy marriage is not the one that simply ignores these ordinary, mundane things of life, right? That is not the mark of a healthy marriage. If you just ignore all of these things, trying to introduce more and more new and exciting things, always trying to spice things up. No, the healthiest marriages are always the ones that are committed to doing the ordinary, mundane things very well. Aren't they? Haven't you found that to be true in your own marriage? I think it's the same way with the church. A lot of us come into the church expecting it to just be thrilling and exciting every single day. Uh, we are, and we are thrown off when it starts feeling really ordinary and mundane and just like a normal part of life. And when all sorts of business start to come in to the church, a lot of times our, our gut instinct is to think when this happens, there's something wrong. Maybe we need to spice things up a little bit. We should try something different. Maybe I should just switch churches. Um, I think what this passage is showing us is that the church is actually most healthy the church most clearly displays the fingerprints of its creator when she is devoted to the ordinary things, when she does the ordinary things well. Why? 
Why is that? What is it about these things, word, sacrament, discipline, that so clearly reflects Jesus? What is it about them? It's just this. These marks of the church, word, sacrament, discipline, they're not just things that the church happens to do. They're not just things that the church has decided, well, I guess we could do this because we don't know what else to do. No, these are means by which God works his grace into the lives of his people. They are really means of grace, which is another theological category that I'm not going to get into. Um, We're not going to dissect it right now. The point is just this. God in his mercy has given the church certain tools. Uh, He's given the church certain vehicles through which he uniquely brings his redemptive power to bear on the lives of his children. Things the theologians call the ordinary means of grace. Uh, And the way those tools produce their God-ordained effect is by showing us Jesus. They show us Jesus. They put God's grace to us in Christ's death and in his resurrection on center stage so that we grow in our faith and love and so that we are transformed more and more by his grace into the image of his son. Uh, In other words, it's just this. The ordinary things that characterize the life of the church bear the fingerprints of God because they show us Jesus, because they point us to him, uh, because they put Christ, not us, Christ and not the church itself on center stage. What's the focus of Scripture? What's the focus of the apostles' teaching uh, that the church was devoting itself to? What is every bit of the Old Testament and the New Testament pointing to? It's about Jesus. It's pointing us to Jesus, to his perfect life, his substitutionary death, uh, and his victorious resurrection. What's the focus of the sacraments? What's the Lord's Supper and what's baptism about? It's about Jesus. They're tangible pictures that God has given us to help us understand his grace that he has shown us in Jesus Christ. Uh, What's the point of church discipline? This one's trickier for a lot of people, but it's actually really simple. The point of church discipline is simply to call us back time and time again to faith and repentance. Why would we do that? Why would we call each other back to faith and repentance? It's because we actually believe that there is a God who has shown us grace in Jesus Christ. Uh, Church discipline isn't just something that we do when when somebody screws up really bad in the church. That's what most of us think of. It actually is something that happens on a daily basis as we encourage each other towards greater love and greater faithfulness as we rely on God's grace in Christ. It's about Jesus. So the reason I, I think why so many people are being transformed by God's grace through these very ordinary things here in the life of the church in Acts 2 is because the things that the church was doing in the course of their ordinary life are the things that God has specially designed to put his grace on display and to transform rebellious sinners like us into his beloved children. That's what the church is doing. So the question we, I think, ought to ask ourselves, both as individuals uh, and as a church together, is um, are are, are these the things that we're committed to? Are the things that we are most devoted to the ordinary means by which God actually works his grace into our lives? Are those the things that we're most committed to? Or is there something else that we're more committed to? Are we more committed to the things that put us on center stage? that put the magnificent things that we have to offer on center stage. Now, it's worth noting, um, first of all, ordinary doesn't mean boring. 
Uh, we should say that. Uh, but also, when we talk about these things, the marks of the church, word, sacraments, discipline, we're not saying that there aren't other things the church does too. We aren't saying that there's not other specific applications of this in the life of the church. Even in this passage, there's other stuff the church does. It says they care for each other's needs. It says they, they pray. It says they go to the temple. They worship. Um, we still haven't addressed questions like what specific events will happen in the life of all saints. Uh, we still haven't addressed the question what style of worship should we have or what should the children's ministry look like? Um, what should the building look like? All, what color should the carpet be, right? These are all maybe important questions, not the carpet one. Um, that one's not important. Um, but what the passage ought to highlight for us, I think, is that none of these questions are central to what makes the church the church. Um, all of these other things, buildings, uh, church ministries, uh, I mean, children's ministries, wor- worship styles, they, they might be valuable vehicles through which the church does what it does, but they are not in themselves essential to what makes the church of Jesus Christ the church of Jesus Christ. A lot of other organizations have buildings. A lot of other organizations have specially tailored events for specific demographics, but only the church of Jesus Christ is entrusted with God's word and his holy sacraments. And with, and with watching over the lives of the people of God. So how did the church do the stuff that it did? This is the second question. The first one's always the longest, FYI. Don't, don't, don't panic. Um, uh, this is, I, I, how did the church do what it did? I think wh- this is one of those things that's so obvious we might easily just skip right past it in this passage. Um, but I, it, it is central to the picture that Acts 2 gives us of what the life of the church looks like. How did the church do what it did? They did it together. They did it as a community. Here's the thing. This runs like completely counter to the way most of us think about the Christian life. Um, I like the way one writer described it. He said that most of us tend to think about the Christian life um, <clears throat> as if you and I are connected to Jesus. We're connected to this source of grace, almost like a scuba diver's connected by a hose to, to his air supply. Um, so the diver is basically a self-contained system here. We might care deeply about the other divers around us, but the fact is if their air gets cut off, it doesn't really hurt me at all. And I also really can't share with them any supply of the air that I'm receiving. I'm not a scuba diver either, so I don't know. Maybe you can. Um, but, uh, but basically his point is is that the way we conceptualize the Christian life is in such a way that it really wouldn't make any difference whether I'm right next to the other divers or if I'm 100 miles away from them. And it wouldn't make any difference in the Christian life as to whether I'm right next to you and intimately involved in your lives or whether I never really uh, come into the same area as you. I, I think it's pretty accurate. thing is, it's nothing at all like the picture the Bible gives us for what the church is. Um, which describes the church as one individual body that's made up of all these moving, active parts that each have their own job that are interconnected and won't grow without the other ones. Uh, as, as, a, as a living building built with living stones that are all part of this one building. According to the Bible, no one Christian is spiritually independent of the others. Uh, we are together one living and breathing thing, and that's hard for us to think about. But therefore, if that's true, the normal Christian life 
can't just be about an individual believer's relationship with God. The Christian life can't just be about my relationship with God because if I'm isolated from the Christians around me, then I will be weaker and I will be less mature because you, believe it or not, are part of the system that God has designed to grow me up in His grace. You, we are part of the system that God has designed to grow each of us up into His grace. That's the way our Creator's designed us to work. That's what the church is all about. And that's what's on display here, I think, in in Acts chapter 2. I see this all the time on campus. Uh, Students, who are the students who grow most during college? This is without fail. I have yet to see a single exception to this. Who are the students who grow most during college? They're the ones who are connected to Christian community, especially the church, without fail. And it's not a coincidence either, because the church is the place where the means of grace have been entrusted. Everybody always talks about how important college is uh, in the development of, of and, and spiritual growth and formation. It's almost a sort of pressure cooker situation. I, I know it was huge for me. It was a large reason why I was so drawn towards doing campus ministry myself. But I would say that significant growth, this is in my experience, of my personal experience watching other students, significant growth and formation never happens without the student being vitally connected to Christian community. Because that's how it works. That's how God has designed it to work. I was just having this conversation last week with a student. He's made it to his senior year, and he feels like he's suffocating spiritually. Because he is. And it's because he's isolated himself from the church for the past three years. That's some of you. That's been some of your experiences, too. Uh, Some of you are there right now. That's not how we're designed to work. That's not how we're designed to grow. God's grace doesn't come to us simply by sitting in our rooms by ourselves with our Bible. So why does it feel so unnatural for us? Why do we naturally want to avoid community? What's, why, if it's so important, then what is it about us that makes us just want to avoid it? Because we do, right? We live in a culture that glorifies uh, independence. It romanticizes solitude. We, we so often fall into thinking that, you know, real growth will just happen by finding myself, by being true to myself. We're not immune to those ways of thinking. Um, why do, why do we cringe a little bit on the inside when we hear about a church-centered view of the Christian life? Why do we cringe? Well, I think at least one reason is just because it's hard and it's uncomfortable. Because as soon as you introduce other people to the equation, you're suddenly going to have to start learning about forgiveness. You're going to have to start learning about patience and confrontation and long-suffering. Uh, those things are never fun to learn about. Uh, but those are things that we need to learn about if we're going to understand God's grace. Uh, those are the places where God's grace plays itself out in our lives. Those are the places where we come to experience firsthand what forgiveness and grace is all about. And then we really cringe when we read stuff like verse 44 and 45, probably, most of you. It says, All who believed were together... And they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And you think, surely that's not supposed to apply to us, right? 
We're not not really supposed to do that, are we? Um, Some people have argued that these verses claim that the the Bible promotes socialism. I'm not going to get into that. I'll just say I I don't agree. Um, But what I will say is this, is that what this highlights is the reality that as long as the church is bearing the fingerprints of the God who created it, it's going to be a community that is characterized by self-sacrificial giving. Uh, It's going to be a community that's characterized by not holding on to those things that we naturally consider to be ours, Uh, whether it's our money or our time or our energy. uh, And instead, we're going to be a community that sees ourselves and our resources, uh, see ourselves as just these resources, really, that God has entrusted to us to be used for the benefit and the building up of his body. In other words... Uh, we, both individually and as a community, are going to take on the characteristics of Jesus Christ uh, if we are bearing his fingerprints as the one who gave up everything that he had to the point of death for the sake of his brothers and sisters. So in the way that you think about the Christian life, where does the community of the church fit in? In the way you think about the Christian life, your Christian life, where does the church fit in? Is it central or is it kind of peripheral? Do you understand your need, your real need of the community of the church if you're going to be a healthy and growing Christian? And do you understand the church's need of you if it's going to be a healthy and growing church? Questions worth thinking about. So we, looked, so we looked at what the church did, these ordinary things. We looked at how they did it. They did it in community. Now, briefly, what, what happened? What were the results? Look at verse 46, 47. It says they, they were joyful, they were generous with each other, and, and they were, it says, praising God and having favor with everyone. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Uh, the church grew. That's what happened. That's what the result was. Uh, People who hadn't heard the gospel heard it. uh, And they believed it, and they trusted in it, and they were transformed by it. And what happened after they believed? What happened? I think this is amazing. It actually doesn't say anything about them hearing and believing, which is the only part that you and I would talk about, probably. It's What it says is they were added to their number. What does that mean? It means they became a part of the life of the church. It was inconceivable for these early Christians that they would simply believe and then go on in the Christian life by themselves without a vital connection to the church. They joined in with the church in its corporate life and in its devotion to these very ordinary means by which God shows us his grace. Where does the church fit into the way you think about the Christian life? Central or peripheral or somewhere in between? A lot of people, some of you, kind of have an allergic reaction to this, such a church-centered view of the Christian life. Um, For anyone who's not a Christian, I suspect that this, most of what I've said would sound downright ridiculous. Um, I expect that. Um, For a lot of people who struggle to to embrace the church, as the Bible talks about it, it, it's because the church looks messy and it looks broken to you. Um, It is. But what do you expect, right? It's filled with people like us. Uh, The church is built on the grace of God and Jesus Christ from beginning 
to end for every single one of her members. It's a mess sometimes. So I would just say, why don't you get on board? Bring your mess too. I know we all did. I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to get together at least every Sunday. We're going to remind each other about the overflowing abundance of God's grace that he's shown to us in Jesus Christ. And then as often as possible between Sundays, we're going to remind each other again and again. And we're going to share meals together. And we're going to encourage each other towards further growth and sanctification until the day that we together are presented as the beautiful, pure, spotless bride of Christ. That's what we'll do. That's what the church is about. I know I need it, and I suspect you probably do too. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand this and believe it. Our Father in heaven, your grace is so much greater than we expect it to be sometimes because of how ordinary it looks in the life of the church. We confess that we have such a small view of the way you intend to use us in the lives of each other and the way you intend to use the church in our own lives. Would you grow us up? We need that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.